You are about to listen to the full interview with Alex Schlegel. Sections of it were originally included in our Oring Pendek episode. Alex Schlegel is a cognitive neuroscientist who participated in a four-year camera trapping project seeking the Oring Pendek. We dig deeper into the time he spent in Indonesia seeking the creature. We hope you enjoy. Uh, my name is Alex Schlegel, and I'm actually an AI researcher. I work for a startup named Vicarious that's trying to solve human-level intelligence via robotics. Um, were you involved in this work before you got introduced to the Oring Pendek? I was not involved with this work at the time I was involved with Oring Pendek. No, I was. Um, I, I got involved with Oring Pendek via my doctoral advisor, um, and so that's yet another life where I was studying cognitive neuroscience. Hmm. And can you maybe explain what the Oring Pendek is? Sure. Well, if it exists, the Oring Pendek is a, a small bipedal primate that would live in Southeast Asia, um, at least Sumatra, where most or all of the sightings that have been given the name Oring Pendek have occurred. Uh, it's so the, the, the most interesting thing about it is its bipedality, because the, we're, we're the only living uh, hominid at the moment that, that we know of that is exclusively bipedal. Orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, they, they can walk on two legs, but for the most part, they, they use their arms for locomotion as well. So that raises some interesting questions about if, if this animal does exist, what is its relationship to, to Homo sapiens? And uh, how did you first get involved with the Orin Pendek? You touched on a little bit with your professor, but maybe we can go a little bit more in depth on that. Sure. So I first got involved with Orin Pendek uh, when, I was, when I helped run a National Geographic project that was trying to determine whether or not it existed by trying to get photographic documentation of it. And this, the, the leader of the project was my, at the time, future doctoral advisor, Peter C., who's a professor at Dartmouth College. You mentioned that this was a National Geographic project. Um, do, you know, do you know where their interest in the Orient Pendek came from and how that originated? The, the, so National Geographic became interested in it because of Peter. Uh, he, he knows... He had friends that worked for National Geographic, and when he became aware of the possibility that Oring Pendek might exist, he, he talked to them. And this was also around the time when Homo floresiensis was discovered. And there's also interesting parallels between descriptions of Oring Pendek and descriptions of Homo floresiensis. And so the, the idea that popped into his head at the time is, oh my God, what if Homo floresiensis is still alive and Sumatra is just a couple islands over from Flores Island. So it seems like a possibility at least. In Homo floresiensis, the, the fossil records we have of it are from around 12,000 years ago, which is not that long evolutionarily. And so he, anyway, he, he mentioned the possibility to a friend and said, somebody should go and actually see if this thing exists. And they said, you should do it. So he ended up applying for some funding. Um, this was through I believe it was called National Geographic Expedition, so a, a branch of the organization that, that funds research. And in particular, we were in, I guess, one of their high-risk, high-reward categories of funding. So <laughs> they, they probably didn't expect a whole lot, but they also didn't give us that much money, just enough to get some equipment and send a couple young, uh, young 
graduates out to live in Sumatra for a while. <laughs> Can I hear a little bit more about Peter's background? Like, who is he and where did he, um, did he have a background in, like, uh, an interest in primates? Or was this kind of a completely different thing than he was used to working on? Yeah, so none, none of our backgrounds are at all related to Orangpendic or primatology. We were, I think, by by any measure on paper, not qualified <laughs> to do this project. But Peter is a very... Uh, a very interesting and interested and curious man, and he's he's had a lot of experiences and not afraid to try new things. So we're all cognitive neuroscientists by training. Um, not not I would say very closely related to the idea of going and documenting primates in the rainforest and in Sumatra, but <clears throat> where Peter became. Uh, interested and in, aware of Orang Pendek was actually back in the early 90s. This was after he had graduated from college and was experiencing the world. And at one point he was uh, canoeing in Sumatra and his guides were talking about the story of this creature called Orang Pendek. So Orang Pendek in Indonesian just means short person. It's like orangutan actually means forest person. And uh, I am an Orang America, American person. So Orang is an interesting word, and at least their concept of of apes versus humans, they, they assign this same name to all of us, Orang. So it gives you an idea maybe of the spectrum along which, at least in Indonesian conception, we all lie. So he was canoeing in Sumatra, and his, his guide was telling him about this creature named Orang Pendek that was about a meter tall, not quite an ape, not quite a man walked on two legs, was furry, but uh, would was frightening to everybody who met it. It would live on the edge of, of farmland. And anyway, he just he wrote it off as a you know a, a folklore at the time, but it, he remembered uh, those stories in 2004 when when all the big news about Homo floresiensis was coming out. Again, like I said, the the parallels were very intriguing. And so that one thing led to another, and we got money and headed out there and tried to run a camera trapping project. Uh, how much funding did you receive from National Geographic, and then how long did the project last? I think the initial grant was around fifty thousand dollars, so it it gave us enough to buy. At the, well, the initial grant was that much. Then we got some some more funding later on from them, but it was less than that. Um, and it was enough to buy at the at initially thirty camera traps and pay for plane tickets and uh, rent a house for a year and pay for guides and trips out into the jungle once a month, batteries, all that kind of stuff. So it was it was enough to run the project, but definitely not enough to have a salary or to, to really have the resources that I think we, we should have had if we wanted to maximize our chance of documenting it. We started the project in the summer of 2005, uh, headed out there, I believe, at the beginning of September. And... Off and on, we were running the project until 2009 when money ran out and we were all distracted by getting back to our regular lives. So around four years was, was the length of the project. Did you spend all that time out in Indonesia or were you flying back and forth between the U.S.? So I, I spent the first year out there along with a friend from college. The For the first three quarters of the year, it was just us two. And Peter was a tenure track professor, so trying to get tenure and couldn't really spend much time at all out there. He was, you know, mainly trying to get research done back at Dartmouth. But then in the early 2006, we were joined by another 
person who we hadn't known until then. Um, his name is Murray Collins, and he was British and also interested independently in Oring Pendex. So he ended up joining the project and living with us and help help uh, helping run the project. So that we operated like that for a year, and then uh, I went back. I came back to the U.S. Uh, the the plan was to try to get the project to a point where it could be self-sustaining because once we had all the cameras uh installed in the forest it was just a matter of once a month going out there checking the photos and changing the batteries so we were trying to get it so that we could have local people actually just run that in maintenance mode uh since we couldn't just live out there forever so we tried to do that it worked out to some degree but then there were constantly problems we constantly struggled with the the government bureaucracy and the national park and at one point all the cameras were confiscated so i think then that's when i went out and then tim my friend came back out the next summer to apologize to the park get the cameras back put them back up and then yeah i think i so i in total i went out three times but didn't didn't ever stay there more than that first year for any long length of time. You mentioned the a third. Was it mostly just you and Peter involved in the project, and then later, um, sorry, I missed his name. Oh, what sorry. Name? So, uh, so to start with, it was Peter, uh, my college friend Tim Maurer, and then myself, and then later on, uh, Murray Collins joined us. So he had before then actually done a documentary about Orang Pendek. I'm forgetting that I'm blanking on the name right now. But anyway, he had been interested in it independently and contacted us and ended up flying out and joining us. So then it was the, the four of us. Um, could you maybe tell us a little bit more about why the cameras were confiscated? Like what are the what were the issues that you guys were having with the, the government at the time in regards to that? Sure. I think I mean, it was a it was a mixture of us. Uh, well, it was a mixture of onerous regulations and us thinking that we could just ignore them. <laughs> So, for instance, w- one example was um, uh, that at some point there, the, so we were operating in a national park, and there was a rule that at some point we were made aware of that, you know, we had not seen it anywhere beforehand that um, photographs taken in the park were should be taxed. I think it was something like 20, 25 cents a photo. I don't, yeah, I don't know if it was ever written down on paper, but but that didn't really work with the model that we were using. So these camera traps would take a lot of pictures of everything. They were, uh, they operate by a combination of looking for something that's hotter than the surrounding and moving. So they had a, an infrared sensor and a, an emotion sensor in them. And anytime both of them were activated, it would just take a photo. But that would mean that often we would come at the month and we would have 500 photos of rain. So given our, our budget, we really couldn't afford to, you know, pay a quarter for every one of those false positives. Uh, and so we ignored that. They they were constantly also trying to get us to go through a bunch of hoops of, I think, like writing a joint memorandum of understanding. And we never did that. And so anyway, at some point, they, so uh, our good friend Sahar, who was our, our main guide, and he we were training him to take over and run it while we were gone. At some point, they came to his house, all official. I think they might even have had guns. And they they took him out into the forest, made him take all of the cameras down, you know, 
scared him to death. And anyway, he we got these panicked emails from him and then realized that we were going to have to go and fix the situation. Poor guy. <laughs> yeah, but I think, yeah, I mean, in the end, the, like, the, the real problem was that we were we were four people. We were in an organization. We had minimal funding. We, we really didn't have the resources to be, uh, you know, a nonprofit that was navigating a, a government bureaucracy along with trying to do a project. And so we did the best we could. Um, you touched on it a little bit, but could you maybe go into more detail about how the camera traps themselves worked? Sure. So the reason that we we went with camera traps is that they've been ha- proving to be very useful in in recent years uh, to document animals without having human contamination in the environment scaring the animals away. So it's just a camera. Actually, the camera, the models that we were using were mainly intended for deer hunters. I think I guess this is a thing that hunters do. They like to get pictures of their the, what they're hunting. So they'll. You get a, a camera that has some kind of camouflaged uh, uh, housing and it can attach to a tree. So we would put them along trails or areas that we thought that animals might frequent. And then these these particular cameras that we had would just be powered by four D-sized batteries. They had, a at the time, a compact flash memory card in them. And so it was just a digital a digital camera and it was activated by... Uh, a motion sensor and a heat sensor. So anytime those sensors were tripped, the camera would take a photo. Ours were also supposed to take video, a, mi- a minute-long video, along with it. But they—I don't know what happened. They rarely—they rarely took the photo. There was some issue with them. So they're supposed to be just a, a camera that's activated by heat and movement, and uh, is in a weatherproof housing, and has its own power supply. And then you just hook them up, turn them on, and leave. And after a few days, your scent is gone and animals will return. So this technique has been proving very useful in um, animal research. I think there's been a string of stories over the last 10 to 15 years of discovering you know, the first big mammal in areas that we've found in, in 30 years. So it's pretty crazy that we're, you know, there's this large mammal. It's a new species that we've never documented. And we discover it now in the you know, 2010s. So it gives you a sense of even though we think we know everything about the world right now, there's a lot of there's a lot that's still undiscovered and unknown because uh, there's a lot of very remote areas in the world, and also a lot of remote areas, especially that Western science hasn't reached. So there there may be knowledge of these animals, but they haven't yet been documented by our our scientific system. Anyway, so we we got. We ended up at the at some point with 55 or 60 cameras, and we would just find an area that we thought looked promising, so that was remote and was in the general region that people reported having seen these animals or seen orang pendek, and we installed the cameras, hooked them up, and then it would just then it would just be maintenance mode, coming back every month and seeing what, if we got anything. Did you guys end up capturing anything interesting, whether you think it could be contributed to the Oring Pendek or anything, even if it doesn't isn't Oring Pendek related? Well, the I guess the most exciting thing was the the tiger photos that we would get. So I don't know what the numbers are right now, but at the time there were around 400 Sumatran tigers left. Uh, that's a pretty small number for a fairly big island. Anyway, so you you don't you just don't even think about the chance of seeing a tiger while you're out there because they're they're so rare and also would 
avoid you for the most part if, if they were around. But over the course of the time that we had the cameras out there, I believe we got four different photos of Sumatran tigers. So that was pretty exciting. We got lots of photos, hundreds and hundreds of photos of animals. I think the, the most common animal that we got photos of was a tapir. Uh, I guess they're, they're big and slow and they hang out in front of the cameras for a long time. So we would got lot, get lots of those. And um, we got a few photos of clouded leopards and pigs every once in a while, deer, pangolins, lots of different types of animals. Um, some, often we would get actually photos of poachers, the bird poachers that would walk through the forest and collect birds. But never any, any, never any photo that we thought might be of an orangpendic unless it was hiding back there in the rain on all of those false positives. Where you guys were setting up camera traps, was there any populations of like uh, any primates like gibbons or orangutans? There were, yeah, there were uh, siamongs who were a type of gibbon. They, they always would stay up in the trees though, so I don't think we ever got a photo of them. We did get photos of pigtailed macaques. We might have actually gotten a couple photos of siamongs now that I think of it. But they're, there's, they're, siamongs are uh, what, what's called a lesser ape, so they're not one of the great apes. There are orangutans, which are a great ape on Sumatra, but not not anywhere around the, the part of the island we were on. I guess the, the thinking is that something like 70,000 years ago, there was this super volcano explosion in around what's now Lake Toba, and something about that wiped out all the orangutan population on the southern half of Sumatra, so... You only find orangutans on the northern half now, at least so we think. Mm. How do you think that uh, folklore and mythology surrounding the creature affected perception of this project, or do you think it did? I'm sure it affected perception of the project. I'm not sure if I can really get a sense of how. I know that many people know or are aware of orangutans that live around there, and one of the one of the most common uh, aspects of the story that most people seem to be aware of is this this claim that Orangpendic walks with its feet facing backwards so that it fools you if you're trying to follow its tracks. So that would be the, the most common reaction that we would get when we would tell people what we were doing is they would say, oh, you know, they would pantomime with their hands, the, the foot going backwards. Were there any other, like, any other interesting pieces of folklore you heard about the Orangpendic like that? That's a pretty cool story. Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a cool story. There, were, I mean, there were cool... Yeah, another uh, interesting part of the folklore that I would hear quite a bit was a sense. Well, there are okay, two I can remember. So one of one story was that Oring Pendek is a shapeshifter. Um, so if it lives, if it's in the forest, it looks like a tiger, and if it comes into a town or farmland, it looks like an ape. So that was interesting. Another uh, common theme that we would hear is that. Boring Pendek, uh, you won't show up in photos unless it wants to. So if it doesn't want to be seen, it won't be seen. And then there was one more that I had only ever heard actually from Sahar, our guide. And he, I don't know where this story came from, but he said that there's a story that there's only ever two Oring Pendek at a time. There's always a male and a female. And they, they circle around um, Sumatra on opposite sides of Sumatra but that they never meet until one of them is about to die and then they'll come together and mate and then that uh, that offspring will then replace the one that dies and there will be two again. 
so that's that's more of like the clearly you know the storytelling folklore uh but there were quite a few there was another trend i think of stories that we would hear that was interesting at least more interesting in terms of trying to decide whether or not orang pendek exists is that a lot of the stories of sightings of orang pendek would would happen around the farmland and especially farmers who owned land right on the edge of the forest so they would there would be stories of you know sighting or pendek and seeing it coming into the the farm and stealing food and then retreating back into the forest but a very strange and interesting part of a lot of these stories was the the effect it had on the farmers that would report these sightings so these are all so it's a very patriarchal society so these are men who are head of their family and um pillars of their community, you know, middle-aged, they're very respectable people, but they would report just being terrified and um they they wouldn't go back to that part of their farm because they were so scared of seeing it again. So that's that's that doesn't really mesh I think with um the sense that this is a person just telling a story that this is these are people that express genuine fear and they're not really people that are going to tell a tall tale and risk losing their reputation. They seem to be genuinely affected by whatever experience they had and um and scared by it and that fear is also something that that is a, a theme from other groups uh, having seen it like westerners as well they express this this psychological terror at seeing and i don't know if it has something to do with the the uncanny valley the sense of a a thing that looks so close to a human but is yet not a human maybe some ancient learned emotional response we have to aversion to things that are not quite human. That's a really great story about the the farmers, but do you hear any other compelling sightings or stories that that you feel like were possibly credited to an undiscovered creature? Yeah, uh, not necessarily while I was out there, but in researching it, there there've been I think four four different sources that I could identify of stories centered around Sumatra that that sounded like they were describing similar the same thing so the there's this you know Indonesian villager story of farmers that see not on the end of the edge of their farmland um there there are stories that I never could verify myself but I guess that so there are there are still some groups of people that live in the forest out there the the government over the last 50 years has been trying to move them out of the forest and into towns but I think there are still some remnants there then one of the names they're known by are, are the suku anakdalam which I think means something like children of the forest or children of the interior anyway the, so the story is that they they just accept orang pendek as part of the forest that they live in and they give it offerings try to appease it so, um a third source of sightings or reports of it has, are there are some documentations from the colonial days and the I can't I don't know the exact dates but you know around when the Dutch were colonizing um Indonesia of people would come back and they would say that they they saw something that at least obliquely sounds like it could be something like orang pendek you know, something not quite human ape like sitting in a tree scared them and then the fourth source of sightings are which i i think you are aware of um westerners who have come and have reported 
or claimed to have seen it. So Debbie Martyr is the most well-known of those. And she, she worked with Jeremy Holden, uh, who is a, a wildlife photographer in Southeast Asia. And they both say that uh, on several occasions, they actually witnessed, saw Orangpindic with their own eyes. Um, yeah, maybe we could talk a little about Debbie Martyr. And do you, how do you see her? Do you think her experiences um, influenced the project? And did was she was she around before the project started? Did her sightings occur before then? Yeah, she was around in the in the late. I think she actually. I think she also arrived in Sumatra in the early nineties. She she arrived there um, unless I'm misremembering. I think she was a a journalist and ended up. Staying, I, I, as far as I know, she still lives there in Sungai Penu, which is the town that that we were living in, based out of. Uh, she, so she, she says that um, I can't remember why. She, I, I don't know what the mo- her motivation was for starting the project to begin with, but she says that within two weeks of starting that project, she was up at Danau Gununtuju, which is this lake that's in the national park, and she was. They were so she was with Sahar. I think it was. I think Jeremy was there as well. As well, Jeremy and Debbie Sahar, our guide, their guide at the time. And what Sahar says is that she was out um, looking for uh, a new trail to explore down, and she came back absolutely pale and shaking, um, and said that she had seen it and wouldn't think about anything else. I think she went back out that that night, and when they woke up in the morning, she was gone, and she didn't show up until lunch. So clearly something, uh, she believed she saw it, and, and it affected her, and that's probably what set off a lot of her work for the next few years. The way that she describes it is that she was out, and she was in the, um, an area of about waist-high grass, and she saw it. She had a camera with her, but she was so shocked she dropped it on the ground. And she just saw it walk from one end of her view to the other and disappear into the woods. I'm not sure if she says that she ever saw it again after that. I think she says that she did see it on a few other occasions, but for some reason never was able to get a photo of it. Uh, But yeah, so I think that, that definitely framed a lot of our thinking about the project and that the area that she was in at the time, Danogun and Tuju, was also one of our main sites where we placed cameras. Was Debbie involved at all in this project, or did you guys consult with her at all, or have any communication? Yeah, I mean, she was she lived in the town, and you know, if you're if you're the only two groups of white people who live in the town, I think you tend to <laughs> see each other. Uh, so, but she wasn't involved in in Oring Pendic research a document documenting at all at the time she had moved on to um, run the tiger protection and conservation unit in in um, Karinchi National Park uh, so that I think the the purpose of that unit is just to document the tiger populations and to help conserve conserve them help them come back from being endangered she she would always say that uh, it felt so good to be doing something that made sense again. <laughs> that there was there was so much about looking for Oring Pendic that just didn't make sense and was bizarre. And I, I kind of have the same opinion that either way it goes, if Oring Pendic exists or it doesn't, it's bizarre. In some ways, I think it would be more you know, the the stories and the 
every the the whole body of evidence would it would be so bizarre for that not to have not to be associated with something real than to to be associated with something real but if Orangvenic exists, it's it's really bizarre that this thing would exist in 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 the flesh in real life. But anyway, she she wasn't directly involved or much involved much at all with our project. Uh, I remember on one occasion we went to her house and she showed us some plaster casts she had of what would supposedly be Orangvenic feet, but that was about all of our interaction. Other than that. What form, do you know much about the research she was doing when she was uh, interested in Oring Pendek and, and like what form that took? It was also a, a camera trapping project. Uh, I I don't, I think, if I, I might be misremembering, but I think she started out with 12 cameras. And it was through an organization called Flora and Fauna International, FFI. Um, but I don't know, yeah, I, I'd either never knew or I'd forgotten how long the camera trapping project went on. Um, could you talk about some of the, the obstacles you faced while working on this project with maybe the exception of, of the government, which we already touched on? Yes, it's the obstacles we worked on. Well, the, the environment is definitely the biggest obstacle. Uh, we, so we were going to some of the remotest parts of the world. You know, we would end up being in jungle that, or rainforest that the Sahara guide and the, the other guides that were with us said that it was clear that nobody had been to in over 25 years. And meanwhile, this was only, you know, 15, 20 kilometers out. So not that far out into the woods, but, but the, the terrain is very difficult. Uh, it's very mountainous. So there's a lot of elevation change. There's rushing rivers that are difficult to impossible to cross. And uh, not, not the best terrain to be carrying, you know, hundreds of pounds of batteries in and out of the forest. Um, so that was at least for me, very, it was a difficult part of it. Um, I think also another aspect of the, the land that was difficult is just the area that we would need to cover if we wanted to actually have a serious chance of, of documenting a, a rare animal. You know, we, if we had 60 cameras, which seems like a lot, but if, whenever we looked at the coverage on a map, it was just basically a, pin drop in in the forest and so at that in that sense our chances of our our success was always just a matter of probability and probably fairly low probability given the, the resources that we had do you know if your guide sahar did do you know if sahar ever saw the creature so he at the time that we were there he said that he had never seen it and that was encouraging to me how skeptical he was i think because he was also like he he his livelihood was basically based on Oring Pendek that, you know, he, when random groups would come and want to be adventurers and come and go and find it, he would be their guides and it would help him uh, support his family. Um, we would, he would, you know, we were paying him his salary for a long time. So <clears throat> as far as survival, I think there would definitely be motivation for him to tell stories and to convince people that it existed but he would always just tell me i don't know if it exists because i've never seen it with my own eyes i'm hopeful but yeah i just can't tell but anyway so a few years after our project ended i heard from him that he had seen it and i never got a chance to actually ask him though uh for details about it he he passed away a few years ago now so whatever he saw 
side with him. Um, you talked about Debbie Martyr showing you some like footprint casts. Uh, do you know of any f- other physical evidence that exists? Um, is footprint casts the the main the main evidence for the Orang Pendek? Yeah, I believe footprint casts are the only evidence that would be physical evidence. We actually saw footprints on a couple different occasions that matched with some of the footprints that we've seen casts of, and I, yeah, but we we didn't have the equipment or training to actually make casts of it, so all we and it's basically impossible to take a photo of these. But being there, the the footprints were very interesting. They, in some ways. So I could believe that these were maybe just sunbear footprints because they had resemblance to sunbear footprints, but there were also things that were different. And a big difference was that what the the big toe indentation was a, it was a divergent toe. So, <clears throat> like if you imagine dogs or cats, all of their paws, their their like I don't know what you call it, fingers would be um, along a line, but the the big toe on these footprints would be more was more like a thumb so it diverged from the other ones which was interesting um anyway so we we saw those footprints on a couple different occasions at one point we could actually track a little bit through i i tracked some back through the 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 woods where we, we saw that they were going and um over this dirt bank there was this what looked like a hand indentation I could even put my hand in there and I could see that there were five fingers and roughly the size of mine. And so we could trace something having moved through there. Um, but as far, yeah, so as, but as far as the, like the evidence that we've collected, I, I think it's just footprint casts. There, every once in a while we would get emails from people, like one time, especially sticks in my mind, uh, somebody had emailed us who was involved in a, I think it was a mining operation in Borneo, and they said that the the camp had killed one, and they were terrified of it, so they buried it. But he knew where it was, and he wanted us to go check it out. We never did, but I'm always curious what the, how that would have played out if we had. Uh, yeah. So stories and footprint cast. Yeah, you mentioned that um a lot of the footprints you think might be able to be contributed to sun bears. Um, are there any other animals in the areas uh, that you were visiting that you think those footprints could be attributed to? Well, the the what I think is a small possibility, but a possibility is that they were just fabricated. And some, some of them actually, I would be fairly convinced that they were not actually animal footprints. They were just made by somebody making indentations in the ground. Um, because like the, there's a few different footprint casts that I've seen attributed to Orang Pendek and they're not they're clearly not all correct and especially i think this one this one that i'm remembering i don't know where it came from but it it was it looked more like a big a bigfoot cast than a you know so it was like a large human foot um but yeah any other than potential for fabrication or for sun bears not that i can think of i mean Maybe it's a possibility that, you know, orangutans live there, but nobody, not even, you know, locals who live there claim to have ever seen one anywhere near that part of the island. You mentioned that you had seen some prints that yourself that seemed pretty interesting, maybe not totally clear what they were, but possibly fitting some of the descriptions of the orang pendek. Did any of those prints lend themselves to be belong to a bipedal creature or was it more just like one off 
like handprints or footprints that you saw mixed in? I no, we we never really personally found anything other than isolated prints, other than that one time where I I believe actually yeah we we found I can't remember exactly how many, but we could definitely trace them over at least a, several steps of this footprint, and that was when following that footprint back, I it had it had uh, recently come over a, a, a like a mound of dirt and I had seen that it looked like it had pulled itself up by sticking its hand into that dirt. So that was the most interesting we ever saw. There were one or two other times where we, we found isolated footprints that looked exactly like this, this footprint that we had seen and that I have seen casts of where again, it, it, I, I wouldn't be shocked if it ended having been a sun bear, but every time we would find this footprint, it would have that divergent toe indentation as well, which is not the case with sun bears. How common are sun bears in the area? They're pretty common. We uh, Sun bears are pretty common. We we got quite a few photos of them. Um, another, actually, another aspect of sun bear footprints that would lead me against thinking these were sun bear footprints is that sun bears have long claws, and so you'll you'll usually be able to see that claw uh, going along with each of the, the pads on the foot. And we never saw that with these footprints. But but yeah, some of those thunders are a fairly common part of the forest, and they also do sometimes stand up on their hind legs. If, um, if you were going to do this project again, is there anything that you, now looking back on, would do differently? If, if we were to do the project again... Or maybe someday, you know, when we retire, take it up again. I think um, definitely that to have any serious chance of documenting the animal, if it exists, you, we would have needed a lot more resources. So, you know, five times at least the number of cameras that we had. And I think um, I would have tried to be more systematic about going around and documenting and interviewing people who uh, claim to have seen it. So farmers, especially. I guess along with that, you know, having people along that were actually trained to do what we were going to do would probably be good. But um, actually, so one other, I think, creative idea that that had been thrown around um, that could work, I think it would be worth trying to explore to see if we can make it work, is just buying hundreds or thousands of disposable cameras and distributing them, distributing them to people and, you know, having some reward if people could come back with a, a photo of Oring Pendek. So a lot of people there, I don't actually, this may have changed totally since 10 to 15 years when we were there, but at the time, nobody had cameras. Maybe now everybody has cell phones. Um, but anyway, f- farmers you know, that live near the forest, if we could just crowdsource the, the project, I think that would have been a possible way to go. As long as we could figure out a way to do it without you know, having the rewards be so big that people went and started killing animals and dressing them up like Orang Pendek or, or things like that. I could see it backfiring too, yeah. which is why we'd have to do more, think, think it through a little bit more. Uh, if the, if the Orang Pendek is real, um, do you have any thoughts or have you heard any theories about the possible origins for the creature? So yeah, so we've thought a lot about like, if this exists, where would it fit into our understanding of animals and evolution? Uh, if you believed the footprints, that we had seen that had that divergent toe, then it, so I guess like Australopithecus afarensis is a, is a 
an animal that's also brought up as a, in when thinking about orang fennec because it was also one of these very early hominids that um, or hominids that was smaller that was still kind of ape-like but starting to to evolve some of the traits that we associate with ourselves now you know it it was bipedal but it also its its feet were um like our feet so it didn't have that divergent toe so it you know it, it wouldn't be an australopithecus but i don't think anybody would seriously say it would be it would also i guess wouldn't yeah it wouldn't be a homo floresiensis because of the same thing homo floresiensis was basically a human cousin they probably looked quite a bit like us they they didn't have fur covering their skin um it it could be somehow related to orangutans uh so you know maybe that so for instance one story i could see myself believing would be that that super volcano explosion on toba didn't ju just wipe out the population in southern Sumatra, but it created a an isolated population that somehow survived, but survived documentation as well. That seems like, again, just, just speculating, it seems like it could be a reasonable explanation. Do you believe, after your experience in Indonesia, that the Orang Pendek is a real creature? Uh, do I believe that it is a real creature? I don't believe, but I, I don't believe it is, but I also don't believe it isn't I, I guess i'm happy to remain agnostic like i was saying earlier it just after having been involved with it i would say that it's it's going to be as bizarre or more bizarre for it not to exist than for it to exist so as as hard as it might be to believe that something like this exists and lives still and has not been documented by western science in, in the sumatran rainforests my experience has been that I, yeah, I, I would be as or more shocked if it ended up having nothing, other, being nothing other than stories. Um, do you have any plans in the future to continue this research, or is this just something that you did and you're you're done with the work? I I don't think I I don't personally have any plans to. I would still like to, but I realistically think it it will never happen for me at least. It would be great if somebody else could and. I'd be more than happy to help with that, but I, I, I think we've all moved on to our real lives and that, that chapter is done for us. Do you think your experience on this project uh, affected you in any ways that um, you've taken it on into, your, into other areas of your life, like professionally or personally? The, yeah, the, the, the whole experience definitely affected me. I mean, when we started, I was in my early 20s, so still young and impressionable and it was a, a very challenging experience, but I think also one that just instilled in me a lot of confidence that I can do pretty much anything I want. And, you know, I would find myself giving presentations to to national Indonesian government organizations, <laughs> uh, which wasn't something I would ever imagine myself doing. But, you know, it's all you have to do is put yourself out there and try new things and very interesting things will happen. So I think it's definitely yeah, made me... I think this project, along with, you know, having Peter, who was the leader of the project, as my mentor, he's, he's, I think, in some ways, reflects the nature of the project of someone who's widely curious and doesn't mind putting himself out there and doing something that might be ridiculed because even small probability events might happen and good things can come out of it. What was your favorite experience um, during this project? 
Okay. Well, the so the experience that comes to my mind right now is maybe being among my favorite are being out in the forest at night, uh, all snuggled in our our shelter. So when we went out, what we would do is we would have you know us and uh, a guide, and then we would hire a bunch of porters to carry all the food and and supplies, and batteries, cameras when we were placing them, etc. So the the groups would be up to around eight people, and every night the the porters and the guide would would put together a shelter for us. So they would cut down straight branches, and we would have tarps that we would they would make a, a pretty amazing sturdy shelter for us. Sometimes actually these we would sleep in what were more permanent versions of these that people would use as they were passing through the forest. So one in particular when we were in this area called Batang Ulas. Um, it was a, a semi-permanent semi shelter and it had uh, fish smoking racks on it. And so we would, so anyway, my, one of some of my favorite memories are just laying there after having walked through the forest all day long and I'm tired and laying in my sleeping bag and the everybody's cooking and preparing food. It was a, it was a kind of a magical and experience that I, I wouldn't be able to replicate at any other time in my life, I think. Obviously, the Orang Pendic is a kind of a controversial topic, especially for um, a tenured professor to be going out and, and searching for. Did you did your team face any skepticism or uh, ridicule going into this that that made it difficult either in Indonesia or in the West? I don't I don't think we faced any any ridicule that would have affected us. I mean, that was probably just because we weren't like we weren't in any situation to begin with that we needed to be perceived as serious. <laughs> like we had gotten the money from National Geographic. So I don't know, I wasn't involved with getting the money. So I don't know if how much skepticism Peter had to deal with at that point. But once we had the money, it was just a small group of people going there and um, running the project. So I don't, yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, I would imagine that we got laughed at quite a bit by, the local Indonesians who lived there. <laughs> but even without that, we were freaks. Uh, so <laughs> we were laughed at no matter what. Could you talk a little bit, do you know much about when Homo florensiensis, florensiensis was discovered and, and a little bit about the discovery that happened there? Sure. Uh, I know a fair bit. I'm, I'm definitely not an expert. but So uh, Homo florensiensis was discovered or the, some fossil remnants of it were discovered in on an island named Flores Island, that's where its name comes from, in 2004, I think in a in a place called Liangbua Cave. So they were excavating the cave for, I'm not exactly sure what, I'm assuming some kind of archaeological dig, and they discovered uh, bones that were odd and didn't match human bones and ended up being identified as this new species. There was actually a fair bit of controversy about it for several years um, about whether this was a new species or whether it was just uh, a human with some kind of um, with some kind of disease. And I think at, at this point it's been fairly well established. They found enough, sorry, enough examples of different individuals that it's pretty clear now that it is a different species. The fossils that they found, I think they dated them to something like 11,500 years ago. So this was a time when there were also humans on the island. So we coexisted with them. I don't know if there were humans on, sorry, not on that. There were 
humans in the general area in the Indonesian archipelago, but I don't know if there's any evidence that we interacted with them. Um, yeah, so anyway, 11,500 years is not a long time. And this is part of a general trend that has just rocked our understanding of human evolution in the last 20 years or so is uh, we're discovering that there were at some point there were many, many species of humans all alive at the same time. Denisovans, Neanderthal, Homo erectus, us, Homo floresiensis. I think there was just actually, I can't remember the name of it, but another Homo floresiensis-like human that has been discovered somewhere else, I think in Southeast Asia. But anyway, so it's it's definitely, I think, flipped our understanding of, of human history upside down and you know, lens maybe makes makes something like Orang Pendix seem slightly less outlandish. There was a time when we thought humans and Neanderthals, Homo erectus, you know, that was about it. But we're discovering that the past looked very different. Do you believe the Orang Penda could be a real creature? Let us know on our Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Terrara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheramizanov.